When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, the Bible, relationships, and I, asked, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where tonight I am looking at a specific set of Bible verses called Clobber Passages. I'm recording this prior to an event here in Pflugerville with an organization called Pflugerville Gays. Our church is partnering with them to present a theology talk and discussion at a local wine bar, Three-Legged Goat. And some of you asked for this, um, the, the recording of that, and I, I won't re- be recording it because it's real people and their, uh, their discussions and their vulnerability that I don't want uh, this recorded when there's a recording device or camera at an event, which there always is, but an official one. Uh, sometimes people are less uh, likely to disclose and be vulnerable in a space that needs to be vulnerable, especially when we're talking about issues of human sexuality uh, and especially about issues that have resulted in people's murders and deaths and discrimination by the church and by people that um, hate uh, and, and express bigotry in their own life. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, the clobber passages. Um the biggest ones are Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Levitical laws against a man lying with a man as he does with a woman, and Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, and Jude 6, and then Romans chapter 1. To me, um, the one that's used most frequently is Romans chapter 1. Uh, but we'll use this order um, coming off the website, post-Bardian. I found to be a pretty good description of the clobber passages. By way of uh, credentials, I know I don't ever talk about my credentials on the podcast because it's a podcast and you really don't care. But I think when it comes to la- the language of the, the Bible, languages of the Bible, the Bible's written in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, in the Greek language. And I have studied all of these languages at the graduate level, including Aramaic, in a very short course I took, but I did take Aramaic, although none of the clobber passages are in Aramaic. But Hebrew and Greek are both languages that have a lot of ways of expressing a lot of things, just like every language. And every language has both words and metaphors for sexual activity, um, Killing, violence, and sex both have a lot of metaphors, if you think of language that way. There are a lot of ways to, um, that we talk about euphemistically to kill somebody, and a lot of ways euphemistically to engage in sexual intercourse with somebody. And those are both um, in the obscene realm, obscena in Greek, ob, off, and skeen, scene. Uh, violence and sex in Greek plays were often done off the stage. They would say what they were going to do. They'd go off stage. They'd come back, and you kind of assumed you knew what was happening. So obscene comes from that sex and violence being done off stage. I'll do a quick rundown. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. Lot is sheltering um, the angels and a gang of men come to his door and demand that he send them out. 
and they say they want to know them. Know here is a um, sexual euphemism. They want to rape them, forcibly engage in sexual assault against these visitors. They are guests of Lot. Lot refuses. He offers his daughters to them. They do not want his daughters. They want the men. Um, This is often seen as a homosexuality run rampant. These homosexual men are attempting to do something terrible to Lot's guests, these angels. The angels cause them to be blind and they scatter. Um, The real problem with this verse is that these men are trying to rape someone or a group of people. Um, That's the problem. That's always been wrong. It will be wrong in the future. It was wrong in the past. It's wrong in the present. Um, The forcible, forcing someone into sexual contact in any way, shape, or form is an act of extreme violence and condemned in Scripture every single time. So uh, the term sodomy comes from this, that is non-vaginal intercourse um, between a man and a woman or between any other people. Sodomy is still outlawed in certain law codes, although its definition is rather vague at these at this present date. But for some reason, Sodom, sodomy comes from Sodom and Gomorrah, that's cities where Lot and his family lived and where this event happened in Genesis 19. There is a harsh judgment against the city of Sodom and, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's where Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. The cities are destroyed by fire and probably sit below the Dead Sea somewhere today. But it's always wrong, it's always sinful and evil to uh, violate the hospitality codes that all cultures have, including ours, and especially to do such violence to the guests. That is the problem of, that is the sin of Sodom. Um, Levitical laws in Leviticus 18, 20, chapter 20, thou shalt not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. These are all in the law codes relating to sexual ethics and sexual, um, what we might call deviancy of different relationships that you're not supposed to engage in sexually. Certainly one's siblings, one, one's family members. These are all listed in that way. The, I think um, this passage can be taken a couple different ways, although this is really the only real prohibition of specifically um, same-sex behavior in in a law code in the Bible, in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament. I think these passages uh, really speak to the the whole point of sexual ethics in the Bible, including rules of purity, which relate to when a woman has a period and she is ritually unclean for a certain amount of time. The um, To me, it's pretty clear that any kind of sexual intercourse that cannot produce a child is forbidden. Uh, perhaps this is what is behind so many of the laws against um, have, engaging in sexual intercourse when women uh, are having their period. There's also the blood involved in the period that makes one ritually unclean to be inside the camp. This was also true of people engaged in warfare Um, that they had to stay outside the camp. But this idea of ritual 
uncleanliness and cleanness is not the same as sin. Um, not the same as, as sin. Ritual uncleanness is different than sin. Um, that ritual uncleanness is um, a very different thing that is addressed in the New Testament when Peter is told to rise and kill and eat the unclean animals that are unclean. God, what God has, what, what those have called unclean, God is now calling clean and they are to do that. They are also to include the Gentiles into the covenant, which would have been unclean at one point. So these uh, ritual laws of purity in Leviticus seem to be more about that than the condemnation of two men that love each other. Again, rape and sexual violence and assault and harassment is always condemned in scripture and pretty much all ethical systems and law codes of the world over. Doesn't always prevent them from happening, but certainly they're seen as wrong and they're seen as wrong here. Uh, this seems to be more about the ritual impurity. Um, I'm just skimming the surface. First Corinthians six nine through eleven is probably the most well, next to Romans, the uh, biggest clobber passage. That adulterers, the effeminate, nor homosexuals cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There are two terms: malakoi and arsenikoite. Arsenikoite. Two words used here that are hard to translate. One is a hapax legomena. Well, the first is malakoi means soft. Jesus uses this word when he says, in reference to John the Baptist, when they say he's too rough and tumble, they say, he says, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken in the wind. Those who wear soft malakoi clothing are in king's houses referring to the fine fabrics of those who live in king's houses. This word is often used to translate effeminate, unmanly, perhaps the passive partner in a sexual relationship uh, where one is a man and being the passive partner in that relationship. Um, but the idea of being soft as being a bad thing um, and the word arsenikoite, this word literally means man better or man sex person, sex with a man. Coitus, you can hear that word in there. And arsen, man. Um, this is a hapax labagamana, a word used only once in the New Testament, not used anywhere else. Um, perhaps coined by Paul. We don't know for sure. Um, hard to know how to translate this word. Men who have sex, men who have intercourse, doesn't say with who, but we imagine with another man. Um, both of these words may be working together to refer to a certain kind of ritual temple prostitution that would have been common in the world of the Corinth, the Corinthian world, where many children were given, instead of being exposed to the elements or given away, they are sold or given to temples pagan temples to be raised um, as prostitutes, as sex slaves, as um, victims of human trafficking. We would call them that today, perhaps. And it seems like this is the kind of behavior that Paul is saying will keep one out of inheriting the kingdom of God. Whether it is having sex with these people, 
who are part of this temple system or being one themselves, that is a particular kind of evil. It seems like the emphasis on those who are the ones benefiting from exploiting these people, being the most harshly judged. And that is what this clobber passage really is pointing to, not a relationship of equality or of love or mutuality um, that, that is the goal of all relationships, including Adam and Eve, the archetypes of human sexual relationships of people that are both, um, both working together uh, as mutuals and as equals, but rather someone having power over somebody, which would have been very common in the Corinthian world as many of the people were enslaved and had no way to object to being taken advantage of. And certainly in this temple system uh, where ritual prostitution was encouraged as part of the religion. So you're kind of doing the gods and goddesses a favor when you are there in the temple having sex with one of these children or young men or man who is a prostitute, often enslaved, often with very little choices. Um, tragic, awful, horrific kind of stuff that Paul is calling out here. He is not um, specifically talking about what we would today call uh, homosexual relationships or same-sex relationships. Clobber passage, the fourth, pederasty in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1.10. Very similar, pornois, Arsen koites andropodistes, andropodistes, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders. In the New Revised Standard Version, these are not, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, this, these terms used here, the sexually immoral, that can be uh, a wide range of activities. Um, like the word it is related to, pornography, pornois, pornea in the Greek. Uh, you know it when you see it. And that is, um, this is the word that is said Christians should not do, sexual immorality. To me, one of the hallmarks of sexual immorality is a dishonesty, a predatory intent, dishonesty. Um, and this is not what we're seeing in um relationships of equality in our world today. These are relationships of inequality, of power over somebody, of exploitation. Male prostitutes um, can also be a way of understanding this. And then those who traffic in them, the slave traders and kidnappers who do this. Uh, this, this is most likely what Paul is condemning as he would have seen that and seen the fallout from that in the world that he lived in. Rachel Held Evans, the late Rachel Held Evans, an Episcopalian Bible scholar and writer, um, said that whenever you read Paul, realize he's got one purpose in mind. Now, one purpose is to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus around the world. He wants everybody to know that there was a that there was that God became human and died for them on the cross, that he was crucified, died, and rose again. And that message of death and resurrection of universal salvation is the message that Paul is constantly preaching. And he will do anything to get that message across. And anything that detracts from that message, uh, he will loudly condemn, whether it's 
women speaking in churches, he will condemn that in specific cases. Um, if they are detracting from this good news, if it's um, meat offered to idols and people are eating it and causing someone to sin, forget about it. If it's they want to get married, don't get married. It's more important to share the gospel than get married. Unless you have to, you can. Um, everything about his life was focused on this one thing. And to adopt the practices of the pagan temples, um, of engaging in this ritual prostitution, this sanctioned, pious uh, exploitation of other people is particularly antithetical to the good news of Jesus, the, share, the spread of the gospel. It will make the church look like just another shelter for people's unnatural lust, um, which um, is also very natural but also misdirected for Paul and for, for, for Christianity. So this, um, this, these texts are always driven by this need to share the gospel and anything that detracts from that. Um, and, and in the New Testament, we also see, we read the slavery passage. There's a great book, Slaves, Women's and Hom- Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, that I read many years ago. It's kind of outdated terminology, but the idea that so much of what is happening in the New Testament on these subjects of women's equality, of enslaved people, and of se- se- homosexuality, of same-sex relationships have more to do with survival of the Christian church. In other words, conform to what you can in the society around you so that you can live a quiet and peaceable life and godliness and honesty and not cause any waves and not cause us to get shut down. For instance, slaves are told to obey their masters, even the bad ones. Um, Paul certainly knew the story of the Exodus. He knew that God was in the business of freeing slaves that God wanted to deliver God's people from slavery. And he says that in several places. But as a survival technique, if you are an enslaved person and you're going to a little church in one of these little cities, um, the best thing you can do to survive is to do what you can to survive. And that often means, 100% most of the time, do whatever they tell you to do, to obey your master in that way. And we were, we've studied this in First Peter chapter 2. This is survival. This is what you would say to someone um, from far away in a letter that you're not going to meet, but you know their situation. You say, just survive. Just get through the day. Don't, you know, if you try to escape, it, it might get worse. Or, or Not sowing seeds of liberation among the people that are in the situation, but ultimately sowing seeds of liberation in other places in their writings. Paul does that over and over again. Um, that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, that all are equal in Christianity. And if you want to know who is the most like Jesus in the Christian church, it is the enslaved people. They are the ones that have suffered like Jesus. They are the ones who are bearing in their bodies the, the, the suffering of the world, the suffering of Jesus. So they are the most like Christ, and they should be elevated to leadership because of that. So you can see how Paul's ethics of how to survive become, and the apostles' ethics of how to survive, become how they choose leaders in the church. And that in itself upends most of society. The final one here is the um, Romans chapter 1. This is um, pretty, pretty, uh, and I encourage you to read it, the descent into judgment that humans go, that no one is excusable, no one is immune from the judgment of God, that um, the judgment of God is often a further indulgence in 
um, in the things that have set us back. And again, this, um, this argument against men having sex with men, women having sex with women, ex- this seems to be that they are exchanging the natural use of sex for an unnatural use of sex. Not that, um, that they are people who are attracted to the same sex, but they are people that are attracted to the opposite sex that um, do not have sex with the opposite sex, but rather engage uh, those of their own sex um, for whatever reason. Most likely part of the temple cult prostitution, this behavior being encouraged. And even some of the women do this, he's saying. So no one is excused from the judgment of God. No one can stand up and say, I've never done anything wrong. Romans 1, um, Romans 1 does point to this kind of cult prostitution, the cult, cultic practices of the temples as being a grave evil because it exchanges the natural use of love for something that is unnatural. Um, why would... Um, why would they do this? It's a mystery. It doesn't say. But this is ultimately, um, you know, the, the real problem of this kind of behavior is that it's unnatural. And so he's not talking about relationships of equality and mutuality. He's talking about exploitation of people that have advantage over other people and using their power to get sex. And that's always been wrong. No matter who it is, whether it's heterosexual or uh, same sex or whoever it is, um, that kind of behavior is always wrong. I hope this makes sense. Um, if you have any questions, let me know. Um, I certainly haven't said all there is to say about these issues, and there's a lot more to say. Um, our church is St. Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was a very odd person in the history of the world, especially when it came to her sexuality. The accounts of men who watched her get undressed in her tent in the army camps would say things like, she was beautiful, but we had no sexual desire for her. Um, strange things they would say about her. her sa- kind of the same things that people would say about Jesus. And yet at her trial, she is uh, partially condemned for cross-dressing, for wearing men's clothing, refusing to not wear men's clothing. Um, this was a back-and-forth argument at her trial, whether she should wear women's clothing or men's clothing. And it was one of the many ins- things that incited the, the, her murder and her death and her martyrdom, burning alive at the stake, a horrific death that she suffered. And so remember, the church has not been kind to queer people, not been kind to people who don't fit into the very narrowly defined patriarchal stereotypes of sexuality that abound in our world still. So all of this that I've said is in light of that, that the, the Bible is very clear that people should not be persecuted for these things. And that is the overwhelming witness of Jesus and the apostles, and I think should be the overwhelming witness of the whole Christian church, and yet it has often not been the case. We have sinned. We need to confess that sin. We need to make it right, no matter what the cost. The church should be the one standing with our LGBTQ siblings every day of the week, no matter where, no matter when. And that's one thing I love about my little church and the Episcopal church in general is that we try to do that as best we can, not perfectly. Um, At our Washington National Cathedral is a beautiful grave, and it's beautiful in its tragedy. Um, Matthew Shepard is is interred there, buried there, many years after his death, after his horrific murder on the side of a road. 
um, a torturous murder, probably and most likely and undoubtedly because he was gay. And that kind of persecution against LGBTQ people is what so many have experienced in this world. And he's buried in our cathedral because we want to bear witness the fact that this should never, ever, ever happen again. And we're going to do everything we can to make that right, to make it impossible that this could even happen. And yet we still live in a world where in so many countries and even in our own, uh, people that are identify as LGBTQ and, and, other, um, and other sexual identities are persecuted, murdered, imprisoned, criminalized, and many other ways discriminated against. And that is still wrong. So we, there's a lot more to do to try to change laws, to try to change attitudes, and to try to stand up for those that need us to stand with them.